Hear the word of the Lord from Philippians 2:12 to 13. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. This is the word of the Lord. Well, good morning, Sacred City. We, uh, as I said in the first service, we always have to do that twice in my church too, so we'll do it twice uh, to make sure you guys wake up. I'm going to need a little help today, so let me help wake you up. Good morning, Sacred City. Thank you. There she is. I knew she was in there somewhere, and it's like late. What time is it? It's 11 o'clock. You all had coffee, breakfast, kids have woke you up, you should be ready to rock and roll today. My name is uh, Corey. As they mentioned, Corey Johnson, one of the pastors, founding pastor for uh, Heights Church, now called Heights Community Church. We actually merged churches uh, during COVID. The day that everything shut down, we merged uh, churches with another church. So who does those sorts of things? And uh, man, we learned a lot and it's gone incredibly well. And so I want to I want to just say thank you uh, for your faithfulness to us. Um, as Alex just said, you all supported me whenever I first launched uh, Heights Church. And then by um, because of your faith, Faithfulness, actually, man, we got to uh, long, we got to help support Sam in the uh, Moline congregation. So it's kind of a cool exchange of kingdom uh, gifts there and resources there. And as a result, our our church um, getting to walk with you all, walk specifically with your leaders, uh, because of your faithfulness, has thrived. Uh, during COVID, we've done incredibly well. We more than doubled in size. We have a church planning resident that we're sending out uh, in April. We have a, another one of our missional community leaders started a scale rink and rehabbed it and it's like killer. It's, it's just crushing. It's crushing it. It's, a, it's an incredible place to be. It's one of the most diverse areas you can be, places, buildings you can be in the whole St. Louis area. And we're looking, this is pretty cool to be praying about this, we're looking at putting a congregation inside his skating rink. Uh, so it'll look a lot different than what, what we're maybe used to as far as liturgy and song and things like that go. Um, but man, it, we're just going to just kind of just see what God is doing in light of it. It's already a big missional community. It's just like a missional community of 600 <laughs> plus people. Uh, so we're just going to keep kind of seeing what the Lord does. Uh, so be prayer for that. We have a kids camp this week, uh, starts today. I'm sorry, starts tomorrow, launches today. We're expecting 400 kids from that community alone that are primarily just left at home while their, ki- while their parents go to work. They don't have anything else to do. And that's just kind of like one of our initial launches uh, for that space. So all that, I share all that, not to say look at heights. I share all that to say um, none of that happens apart from your guys' faithfulness here. I'm just one of the church planners that you support. And by, as a result of that, I mean, you all have seen hundreds and thousands of people affected with the gospel, and so have we. And so stay the course. Thank you for your faithfulness to church planning, and thank you for your resources that you've given to me. I normally kick off the sermon uh, with about five minutes of, of making fun of your pastor, Pastor Justin Dean. Uh, he preaches for so long, I have to do something to fill the extra time. And in that, though, um, I, I can't do that today. He, uh, he invited me to go to jujitsu with him. I don't know if you know what jujitsu is. It is a combat sport. Um, he, the wrestler invited me to uh, experience his 20 years in the cage, and uh, he beat the brakes off me on uh, Thursday. He said he was going to choke me out for every single one-liner I had to say for him today. And so as a big brother, it would just beat the dust off of a little brother, man. He worked me that whole day. It was fun. It was a blast. And in that, uh, I don't have anything negative to say about him because he put me in my place. So... <laughs> 
the wrestler came through that day. I have been given a specific task here today to talk to you uh, about the reality that God changes you. Uh, in, in your Christian walk, you, you get to play a role in that for sure, but most certainly God in concert with the Holy Spirit and spiritual disciplines, that's actually what changes you. The reality is, though, as a church, like, we don't believe that. Uh, more often than not, we don't actually believe that. We fall prey uh, to religion. I had a, a guy, very Christian dude, came up to me just two days ago, three days ago, I guess now, and, and he said, Corey, next year, man, next year, Next year is my year. I turn 40 next year. I'm going to reinvent myself next year. I'm going to recreate myself. I'm going to get into fitness. He's like, I'm going to be a new man. I said, nope. No, you're not. I said, what's going to happen is you're going to turn 40, and then you're going to turn 40 and one day old, and then two, and then three, and no reinvention is going to come because you can't recreate yourself. You can't reinvent yourself. You can do some fitness. You can do some dieting. You can do some, but listen, but apart from the gospel and God's eternal work in us by the power of the Holy Spirit, no long lasting change is going to come. We cannot manufacture that in ourselves. That's churches like ours. We call that religion. Whenever you think you can work to achieve something that will eternally change you, turns out turning 40 is not going to do that. No amount of fitness, no amount of CrossFit or jujitsu or dieting or low fat or whatever you get into is going to eternally change you. Only Jesus Christ does that. So the big idea, what I've been tasked with today is this. The big idea, if you guys could throw it up for me, is the change you experience in the Christian life is God's work. You get to play a role in that, most certainly. But by and large, it is through God that you are changed. There's three ways that I hope to show this to you today. The, the three different ways I want to point this out is this. God works through a gospel framework. That's identity if you're a note taker. Gospel framework is about your identity. God also works in through gospel-driven obedience. We do get to play a role in God's redemptive plan. Amen. We get to play a role in that. So God's gospel-driven obedience is about your behaviors. It is about the work that you get to do, but notice it comes after your identity first. So identity, then behaviors, and then I'm going to hopefully pull it all together and uh, kind of break down for you the doctrine of sanctification in, God, in gospel-provided pleasure, because it is my conviction that if we understand our identity and where we belong in the kingdom, and we from there, from there, then we work out our salvation, man, we will experience the pleasure that God has in redeeming us and saving us and seeing other people come to faith. Sound good? Okay, I'm, about, I'm from about four hours south of here. You know what southern churches do? They talk to pastors when they're up there. This is a three-way conversation. You got me, you have JC, okay, and then I got you all. And so if I say something like, sounds good, what do you think you should say? Amen. Amen. Or sounds good. That's okay. You know, if I say something that's not funny, just laugh. It's okay. You can laugh. Make me feel good about myself. Otherwise, we're all going to have lunch together, okay? You got two options. Preach for an hour and a half or preach for 40 minutes, okay? So we're going to start with gospel framework. If you're ready, say ready. ready. There she is. Okay. God works through a gospel framework. The first verses that we heard read, verse 12, the Apostle Paul said, therefore, my beloved, therefore, my beloved. If you know anything about the Bible, you know that whenever therefore is the first word in a sentence, you have to look and see what it's what? What it's there for, right? It's kind of silly, kind of cheesy, but it's also true. If it's therefore is in the first sentence, you have to know what, what is Paul referencing? What is Paul talking about? What came prior to this moment here in the scriptures? Unfortunately, we have it. Philippians 2, 5 through 11. Here's what Paul says. Here's what Paul is referencing. You're going to see a framework, a gospel-centered 
framework. Here's what I mean. Paul says this, have this mind among yourselves. Let's stop there. He says, have this mind. Have this thought process. Have this mind. This is a framework that God has given you in the gospel. So have this mind among yourself. What's that mind, Apostle Paul? He says it's yours in Christ Jesus. What was the mind of Christ, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. But he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. So Paul stops. He says, hey, remember the gospel. Like, remember this. This is the framework. This is what gives you identity. And then he hits the church of Philippi. And he says, remember Jesus's life and Jesus's death and his obedience and his humility and his going to the cross. And then he's going to get it now. His resurrection, his second coming. He says, recall the gospel. Have this mind among you. And then he says, therefore, somebody say therefore. There it is again. Therefore, God has highly exalted him. Because of what? Because of his perfect life, because of his sacrificial death, because of his perfect obedience, because of his humility, because of his work, not our work, God has highly exalted Jesus and bestowed on him the name that is above every name so that the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Amen and amen. We can have the band come back up, church. We can take communion if the men who are serving you, right? He just shares the gospel. I'm done. I just read it. It preaches itself, right? We don't have to take four months to preach through that? We can do it in 15 minutes, 15 seconds. He says, therefore, because of this gospel, because of Jesus's life, because of his death, because of his resurrection, because of Jesus's exaltation, his glorification, he's coming back. He says, because of all of those things, now we can rightfully come to verse 12, where he says, there." For, right? He said, had this mind among you. And then he says, therefore, my beloved. What is Paul doing? Paul is reinforcing a gospel framework. He's saying, this is your identity. This is the only narrative that you need. This is the only story that you need. This should infiltrate your mind and your heart and your soul and your family. It's everything that you need is found in the gospel, right? He's saying just apply that as an identity and as a framework. What does that mean to do that? How do you do that? It's as simple as this. Jesus lives the life that you cannot live. So you don't have to be perfect. What would your life look like if you applied that? What would your life look like if you applied that to your parenting? When you're just trying to get out of Walmart, your kid only got one shoe on you and everybody's staring at you. Like, oh, they're all judging me. I don't have to be perfect. Hey, my kid can get out of Walmart with one shoe. We'll buy another shoe later. Jesus died in my place as my substitute, all right? You got to preach that gospel to yourself. You know what I'm saying? You got to preach that gospel to yourself, right? Jesus lived a life I can't live. Jesus dies a death you, that you deserve. Oh my gosh, how freeing is that, church? Jesus died the death that I deserve. I don't have to metaphorically kill myself. I don't have to physically kill myself. Like that is liberating to know that. No condemnation, no self-condemnation. Not in marriage, not in parenting, not in vocation. Jesus resurrects and exalted. What does that mean? He's the name above all names. I don't have to be that name. I'm not that impressive. Jesus is really impressive. There is resurrection Hope, what does that mean? That means there is resurrection hope for your marriage. That's what that means. There's resurrection hope in your singleness. There's resurrection hope for your addiction, for your anxiety, for your suffering, for your shame. Jesus resurrects, sends us the Spirit so that we might be resurrected. 
Your worst days are not your worst days. There's a better day coming. That is what it means. There's resurrection hope. Paul says, has this mind among you, this identity, church, this gospel framework among you. Everywhere we look out, we should see the gospel. Paul says, therefore, beloved, because of all that, as if that's not enough, because of all of that, beloved, knowing that they're not always all beloved. <laughs> if you're in a missional community, you know it ain't easy to love everybody, is it? He says, therefore, beloved, therefore, church, therefore, family, therefore, Christian brother and sister, therefore, for us then, Sacred City Church, for me, Heights Community Church, therefore, man, believe this identity. See this identity. Own this identity. And, and here's the, why this is so important, okay? I've been sitting in this all week. I'm going to hit you with just a little bit of it. I'm going to illustrate something, and then I'll lay it out for you. The reality is this. If you don't know the gospel, you cannot know your identity. If you don't know the good news of Jesus, how do you know how to respond? How do you know how to function in this world? The reality is if you don't know the gospel, if you don't have the gospel as a framework, the good news of Jesus as a framework, you'll continue to profess and believe in a story that is not good news. You'll continue to profess and to believe in what, what I call a, a cultural worldview or a Western cultural narrative, and it's going to run you over. You'll believe in a narrative that you've been born into called Western culture, but you'll never believe in a narrative you've been reborn into that is called the gospel. And American Western cultural idolatry will run you over. Uh, let me illustrate something for you, and then I'll give you five ways I think this happens, in our, or four ways I think this happens in our church. Uh, whenever I come up here, I've been coming up here about 13 years now, married to my beautiful wife, two of my kiddos sitting there, my pa-in-law sitting down there, uh, coming up here for about 13 years, love the Quad Cities, don't love the Quad Cities in the winter, I think it's a morbid place to come, but, uh, but love it during the spring, it's like the only other amen I'll get right there. Uh, Love coming up. I come to Milltown Coffee. Am I familiar with Milltown Coffee? Is that just a place that I go? I don't know if that's like an Iowa thing or, or what, even if it's an Illinois thing, but love going to Milltown Coffee. I like to set up shop there, and I like whenever I sit down, when I look out those windows, man, you set almost eye level with the river. And on one hand, it's beautiful, right? It, it looks really peaceful, really calm. You got everything from ducks to 3,000-pound trees floating down that river. So <laughs> on one hand, I'm like, man, this is really nice. On the other hand, I feel like super finite when I'm sitting there. Like at any moment, something crazy could happen, and I could just get boom, swept away uh, in this river. But I, I set up shop there, and I, I love it. And so I was thinking about that river and thinking about how, from my understanding, that river likes to flood every now and then. I know in the 90s, it was a really big deal, and I, I've seen water come up. I've seen sand sandbags down there in the last few years. Imagine this with me, okay? Imagine Heights Church shows up and the river has flooded. And so we partner with Sacred City Church and we say, hey, we're here uh, to bang with y'all. We're going to help. Uh, we're going to help stave off this river. And you guys are like, oh, thank you. We need your help. Thank you for coming to our rescue, Heights Community. We'd say, it's no big deal. It's whatever. It's fine. <laughs> so we show up. All of our crew shows up. You know, a couple hundred of us show up in there. And instead of bringing sandbags, instead of bringing the National Guard, we brought buckets full of ping pong balls. And you guys would be like, what, um, what, what do you plan on doing with ping pong balls? And we're like, dude, we're going to freaking damn this river is what we're going to do. And we start chucking ping pong balls into the river. The first thing you do, what do you think it is? You look at us, you think, uh, that's stupid. That's not going to work for this. My kids are in here. They're like, daddy, we don't say stupid. That's a four-letter word in our house. Sorry, kids. In that moment, you do. It's okay to say that. Um, you would say, that's a very dumb idea. That's a bad idea. That's not going to work. What, what's going to happen? 
what's going to happen is 11 days later when I'm in St. Louis, I'm going to see a bunch of ping pong balls coming down the Mississippi River because they didn't do anything. They didn't do any good, right? That, that's not going to happen. The, the second thing is this, is that no matter how hard we tried, I could bring dump trucks full of ping pong balls and dump them in the river and it would never dam the river, would it? It would never be effective. Us as a church in concert with you would be ineffective. Okay, hold that illustration for a minute. Let me press upon you that the American Western cultural narrative is no small stream. It's a raging river. And the church is banding together. And instead of using the gospel as a framework, church, instead of having our identity rooted in Jesus Christ, instead of, I mean, diving deep into God's word and prayer and taking this gathering and missional community serious, instead of actually walking out the incredible disciplines that the Lord has given us to enforce our God-given gospel framework, instead what we've done is we've come to this raging river and we tried to stave it off with ping pong balls. And by ping pong balls, what I mean is this little piddly spiritual disciplines that we call worship. Like what I, what I mean by that is, is this, you have five minutes in the car while you're waiting on your kids. You haven't been in God's word all week. And in that moment, while it's convenient, you say, now I'm going to look at the verse of the day. That's not going to reinforce your identity. It's a ping pong ball. It's not going to reinforce anything. I'm not saying it's inherently bad. I'm saying it's not going to do what you're hoping it's going to do. At the same time, we can come into this Sunday gathering as we prayed about this earlier. We can come into this time of worship where we stand before the risen Lord and we say that we're going to come together and worship. And we can come in here with a consumeristic mentality thinking Sacred City Church exists for me. If, if that's the reality where we come in here and we say, hey, this church exists for me, not me existing for this church, that is not a genuine worship. That doesn't even please the Lord. You know what that is? That's a ping pong ball. Coming in here saying this is going to reinforce an identity. All it does is reinforce an identity of consumerism. And we pray that the Holy Spirit moves and works. I'm not saying it's a bad thing. I'm saying it's not going to do what you need it to do. Same thing with missional community. And I could go on and on. Let's say we enter into a missional community gathering, start attending an MC. We call them MCs for short. And you go to that MC and you know, I'm never going to be transparent. I'm never going to be vulnerable. I'm not going to meet my neighbor's name. I'm not going to get my neighbor's names. I'm only going to bring chips on a week. I ain't going to make an entree. Everybody else can make an entree. I'm bringing chips. I'm the chip guy, chip and dip guy. That's what I'm known for. Right, you go into that arena, it's not, you're not going to have the, the change that you need to help you actually engage culture in a way that is efficient with the gospel because it just reveals consumerism and entitlement, maybe some fear that you don't want to get left behind, but it's not enough. Listen, it is ping pong balls. I'm talking about these little moments when we think it's convenient. They're not spiritual disciplines. I would say they're not even obedience. They're secondhand worship. More so worship of self than anything else. Let me continue to press this for you. Um, let me give you four examples of how I think American Western narrative is rendering the church ineffective. I think this is four ways. The first one is this, consumerism. Consumerism. Consumerism says, I want. I want what, Corey? Whatever. I want. I want it. I want it. I, did. I want it. I want this thing, whatever it is. Think about how much of the world you consume. Think about how much of American culture you consume. Let me just phrase it for you like this. Hours on social media, minutes in God's word. 
hours rolling through Facebook, hours rolling through 90-second TikTok videos, can lose three hours in a day, right? Yet when it comes to the Word of God, we think, I don't really need that right now. That's American consumerism. It's idolatrous. Listen, it's running the church ineffective. The, the second is entitlement. Entitlement is a close cousin to consumerism. Consumerism says, I want. Entitlement says, I want, and I also deserve. I deserve this. Man, the, the church is, oh my gosh, just swept away in the river in this. This entitlement. You should think like us. You should believe like us. You should act like us. Think about the way, listen to me, think about the way the church responds to non-Christians on social media. They're non they're not yet Christians. What are you thinking? <laughs> it's not evangelistic at all. It's polarizing, but it's not evangelism. Entitlement, I deserve. You should think like me, be like me, right? I deserve to be a Christian. There's a, a prideful looking down our nose at not yet Christians. Instead of living on mission, instead we turn to pride. We have Christians in the church that all these scriptures about suffering would say, I deserve the good life. And yet we're told to endure suffering for it helps us better identify with our Savior. Yet, how often do we pray for suffering? I deserve an easy road, and yet divorce rates are the same in the church as they are in the world. Starter job, starter wife, starter kids, second job, second wife, second set of kids. It's the same narrative. That is entitlement continue to push on. We have inclusivity, right? Inclusivity. What is that? What does they deserve? I mean, inclusivity as an idol. Well, they deserve. What do they deserve? They deserve whatever they want. Who's they? Whoever. What do they want? Whatever. And in this, there's this narrative pushing through our culture right now that is they deserve it and they deserve whatever they want. Whatever they want to take, they should be able to get. It doesn't matter if it makes sense. It does not matter if it is biblical. It doesn't even matter anymore if it's culturally appropriate. What you are not allowed to do is give them any pushback anymore. And here's the, the ultimately the, the ping pong ball that is being thrown into the river is this. We want to be able to give people anything they want. What do they want? They want moral autonomy is what the word is. What is that saying? They want to be God. What's the church saying? Let them be God. Just let them be God. Let them be judge. Let them be jury. Let them be the whole court system. They can be, let them be whatever they want to be. They can define, they can do, they can be whatever, whoever, however they want for as long as they want. Who cares if it goes bad? How unloving and damning is that to say to someone? Just do whatever you want to do. Oh my gosh. Could you imagine if the scripture read like that? Inclusivity is an idol, man. It's rendering the church ineffectively, opposite of that, exclusivity. What happens whenever people actually take us up on inclusivity? Well, then we get offended. <laughs> and it's called cancel culture, isn't it? Cancel culture, man, infiltrating the church. Think about how frustrated you get with the men and women that sit in this room. Think about how frustrated you get whenever sinners sin against you, even though you know it's going to be the biblical response. Think about setting in your missional community. Let's get in your living room. Think about setting inside your MC. People you call brothers and sisters in the same room as you, yet you sit there in judgment of them. Cancel culture. While we are called to be, man, the most gracious, the most merciful, the most loving, the most 
engaging. I mean, th- these are all the things that Jesus models to save me, to redeem me, to bring me and bring you into the kingdom, into the family of God. We're called to respond in the same way with a gospel framework, with this identity that is just rooted in Jesus Christ. And yet we have the audacity to set with men and women who we call brother and sister and say, canceled. You're done. No hope for you. No mercy for you. No forgiveness for you. That's not good news at all, church. That's very, very bad news. People are not coming to faith in that. Listen to me. This Western narrative that we find ourselves in is not a small stream. It is a raging river. It might look calm on the surface, but tell me right now that whenever you enter into the world, you step outside of this room, you don't feel the chaos. You don't feel like you're just getting swept away. You're like, man, I don't know how to respond anymore. I don't know if I can put things on. It took me 45 minutes to make a post on Facebook because I didn't want to offend anyone. I feel like no matter what I say or what I do, someone's offended, someone's mad at me, someone's going to cancel me, someone's going to exclude me. I'm not inclusive enough for this crew or this crew or this people group over here. And I don't know what I'm supposed to be teaching my kids. I don't know what's happening in schools and outside of schools. And it doesn't not just feel like a raging river. Like it's so conflicting. And it's so contradictory, right? And so when we say that, it makes sense. When I want to set you free in this, it makes sense if you feel a little chaotic. We're not in the kingdom yet. The church is here. The kingdom is at hand, but we are not there yet. And so what I'm, what I'm trying to impress upon you here is this. These little moments with Jesus that you find convenient are damning sometimes. If all you do is engage God in in, in just really practical ways that are really easy for you, they don't actually reveal your dependency on God. They don't reveal an identity and a gospel framework. If anything, they reveal an identity and a framework of the culture that says, this is my consumeristic idolatry coming out. I I find it easy to engage now, so I will. Or or I don't need to read God's word, so I I would rather watch Netflix. I'm owed, this is my me time, entitlement. Like, we have to start asking the Lord to reveal these areas of our lives whenever they're being exposed. Paul says, have this mind among you that is the gospel, that is a good gospel framework, the only narrative that we need. This is the only thing that's going to truly transform and give us new identity. You know what happens when we engage the gospel? We stop lobbing ping pong balls into a raging river. You know what we do, Lob? You know what we put in there? Our bodies is what we put in there. We wrap our arms about one another. I'm talking arm and armed as the church, global church. We look at this big thing called Western culture. We don't run from it and abstain from it. We're not, we're not pushing it away because we're too scared to engage, but rather, man, with a great power and a great authority that is the gospel, that is Jesus Christ in us, we lap our, loop our arms around us and we lob ourselves into that thing. You know what dams up a river? Our bodies would. If the church united together, engaged culture with the gospel. That is a gospel framework. That is what Paul tells us. This is the first thing I have for you. The second thing, then, is this. Gospel-driven obedience. If we have a gospel framework, we will have gospel-driven obedience. We touched on it. Let's continue pressing. The scriptures say this. Philippians 2 says this. As you have always obeyed, So now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you. For it is God who works in you. That's what it says, right? For it is God who works in you. It's not me who works in me. It's not my own spirit who works 
in me. It's not my own efforts, my own work, my own obedience. It doesn't stop there. Paul's saying here, there, there's a little bit of a, a both and situation happening here. If you have a good gospel framework, that will give you good gospel driven obedience. What will happen then is you'll respond to the gospel with obedience and in obedience. And then the Holy Spirit in concert with all these incredible spiritual disciplines that the, God, that the Father has given us, the Holy Spirit will work with you in concert with those things to make you look more and more and more and more and more like your Savior. So Paul begins, gospel framework, your identity must come first. And then secondarily, he says, as a result of your identity, now walk in obedience. Not just when I'm in the room looking at you, but whenever I'm not here, even more so in my absence, walk out this obedience. Man, let me tell you what, church, that's hard. It's easy for Corey to get on Bible hub or whatever, whenever I'm waiting to pick up my little girl from gymnastics. You know what's hard for me? To love my neighbor as myself. Like, if you really think about that, love your neighbor in the exact same way that you would love yourself, only by the grace of God is that happening. Only by the power of the Holy Spirit is that happening. Think about this. Love your enemy. Love your enemy. And right now, as a, I didn't share this in the first service. I'll share it with you guys. Right now, as a missional community, uh, we're walking with this beautiful, godly woman. She has three kids. She quit her job so her husband could pursue his career. One month after leaving, for sure, he commits adultery. Leaves the whole family. Leaves the woman. Leaves the three kids. RMC in our church now, the functional head of her household. You know what I don't want to do? I don't want to pray for that man. I don't want to love that man. You know what I want to do? I want to pummel him like Justin Dean pummeled me at jujitsu. That's what I want to do. Anybody else? Like, I want to be the one that brings justice. I want to be the judge. I want to be the jury. Yet God's word says, love your enemy. It, that can only be driven by the gospel. There's no other way that that's driven forward, church. My prayer for him is literally, God, you do whatever you got to do with that guy. I, I know my heart's hardened. Uh, can you fix that? Amen. That's my whole prayer. That's literally, that's all I got right now. I'm so mad. Like, I'm just angry about it, you know? Frustrated about it. And yet, here the text says, love your enemy, and even more so, go make disciples. Go make disciples? Great commission? Only an act of God. Go make disciples of the ethne, of the nations? I mean, let's just... When's the last time you sat down with someone that you barely knew or this new to the faith and you just said, hey, I'd like to walk with you through the book of Luke. Bible tells me to go make disciples. I don't know exactly what I'm doing, but I would love to do this with you. Go make disciples. Man, I'll tell you what, those three things alone, those ain't ping pong balls, church. Those are boulders. You start doing that, man, you're going to start damming up the river. You start doing that, you're going to start modeling who Jesus is and what Jesus can do for a culture that is longing and looking for everything that God has given us. Everything they're looking for in culture, we have. We have the gift of being able to give it to them. Listen, if you don't know the gospel, you cannot be obedient. If you don't have the gospel as a framework, you don't have an identity that is in Jesus Christ, how do you know to re how to respond to him? You don't know how to respond. All you have is religion in that moment. So Paul begins with identity, know your identity, have a gospel framework, and from there then push that thing, allow the gospel to lead you to be obedient, gospel-driven obedience. So what you're saying, Corey, so I do have some work to do. The answer would be, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, there's some work to do for sure. I think Paul's pretty clear, even more so in my absence. But here's the beauty of it. 
Not all of the work falls on you as an individual. It's not just up to you. It's up to the church. Paul addresses the whole church in chapter one, not just the pastors, not just missional community leaders, the whole entire church in chapter one, verse one. So it is up to the church as a whole to respond in gospel-driven obedience. And as we do that, listen, here's what happens. As we do that, we, we actually get to see God move and work in concert with the Holy Spirit. People start to look more like Jesus. People that we never even thought could look like Jesus. People that we're going to be surprised when we get to heaven and see him. Like, oh, you, you're here too? Crazy. <laughs> I did not expect that, right? But, it, but as we respond in obedience, man, the Holy Spirit comes in, infiltrates us. And then the church starts to look like the body of Christ. Not just a hand or arm or a leg or a toe. The whole body of Christ in a culture. This is how you renew a city. This is how you get to see a city redeemed. Here's what happens. When we don't believe the gospel, we turn to religion. You know what religion is fueled by? It's not Christianity. It's American Western culture. Consumerism. Entitlement, inclusivity, exclusivity, right? Some of the most crotchety, complaining Christians you know, their obedience is off the charts. But whenever you get down in a magnifying glass and you get to know them, you know that all of their behaviors happen because of consumerism. They're only responding in a certain way to Jesus to get more of Jesus, not just to be in his presence, but to get something from him. They're only responding in obedience because of entitlement. I'm just getting what I deserve. They're some of the most inclusive people whenever you look like them, you think like them, you respond like them, and simultaneously, they're some of the most exclusive people when you don't play the same games that they play. They have all religion, and they have no relationship. One of the questions I ask my church a lot is this. Do you find Jesus useful, or do you find Jesus beautiful? Do you find him useful or do you find him beautiful? Because those that are falling prey to religion, you just see Jesus as a piece of, just a tool to get what you need. But man, listen here, when you get the gospel, I mean like your identity steeped in Christ. And then you get to respond and you feel the Holy Spirit begin moving in you and changing pieces of your life that you never even knew could change. Man, all of a sudden, my, 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 now he's beautiful, isn't he? And you're like, wow, that's what you can do. I didn't even ask for you to change that. You just started changing it. And then people around your circle of friends start to change and your family starts to change and your neighborhood starts to look different. Your MCs start to grow and it's nothing that you did. It's just the work of the Holy Spirit. Continue to move and grow. It's incredible. So what does it mean? So how do we do that, Corey? How do I, how do I walk out identity? How do I walk out behaviors? How do I walk out gospel identity, gospel-driven behaviors or obedience? We have to believe the gospel. I think that the best way to kind of marry these two things together is through the doctrine of sanctification. So instead of some big application, I'm going to teach you a little bit of theology, if I may. And in doing so, my hope is that you will begin to see this gospel-provided pleasure. The last point, third point, this gospel-provided pleasure that comes through walking out your identity and your behaviors uh, in Christ. So if I can, I'm going to try to teach you a little... Uh, theology here, if I may. Let me give a little caveat. I'm not Justin Dean, okay? I don't read 100 books a year. I can't do that. I don't know how he does it. Man, he like reads 100 books while listening to Audible and commenting on Goodreads. I don't even know it's possible. It's incredible. It's incredible. He's a genius. Uh, I'm not, but I do dabble. So if you guys will let me dabble. Can I dabble? Let me dabble for just a little bit. 
and we'll see what can happen. Let's talk about what is sanctification. I'm going to bring this identity and these works uh, together. Emma, my little girl who's in here, I did not ask her permission to share this. Um, she was sitting with me on my lap at a worship planning meeting that we had uh, two weeks ago, two or three weeks ago. It's our worship planning. It's my favorite meeting out of the whole week. It's so much fun. And um, we were talking about sanctification. And before we had the opportunity to define sanctification, my sweet little girl goes, Daddy, I know what that means. And I was like, oh, okay. Let's see what you got. And she said, boom, becoming more and more like Jesus. And I said, huh. Yeah, where'd you learn that at? She said, Heights Kids. <laughs> hey, praise the Lord. Oh, we use the same material, training materials y'all use for your kids. So if you've not told your kids volunteers, thank you, you better get over there and tell them after this service. Here she, without a doubt, and not, not a hesitation, looked at my soul. Uh, sanctification means becoming more and more like Jesus. That is exactly what sanctification means, working in concert with the Holy Spirit and God's work to become more and more like Jesus, incredible. There's many things I could say. I'm going to limit it to two for our sake of time. The first is this. It's called positional sanctification. Somebody say positional. Positional. Okay, I'm going to wake you up. Positional sanctification is about your identity. It's about being spiritually sanctified, positionally sanctified, and seen as holy and blameless. The second one I have for you then is progressive. Somebody say progressive. Okay, not the cultural use of the word progressive, the theological use of the word progressive sanctification means physically walking out your identity. So positionally, you were made like Christ, and then progressively, you get to move along the timeline in model obedience, and you begin to look more and more like Jesus. Let me break this down for you a little bit more. We're going to start with positional. Let's do this. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says this, for our sake, listen, For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin. For our sake, God does that. He made Jesus to be sin who knew no sin so that in Christ we might become the what? The righteousness of God. Same word for sanctification. So that we might be sanctified in Christ Jesus. Positionally sanctified before we did anything. Positionally sanctified. Justified is another word. Ephesians 1, 4 through 5 says this. Even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, church. Listen, before the foundation of the world, before you could ever do anything good, before you could ever get a gold star for your obedience, before you ever knew what the word spiritual discipline meant, before you ever walked an aisle, before you ever went to some youth camp and got professed faith in Jesus four years in a row in high school and then finally got baptized or whatever your story might be, before you did anything before the foundation of the world. Amen that we should be holy and what? Blameless. Same word as sanctified before him. In love, he predestined. This was always the goal. You could even say it brought him pleasure, even though we're not there yet. It brought him great pleasure. In love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of whose will? His will. This is no different than what he's saying in the church of Philippi, is it? Continue walking out your salvation with fear and trembling for God's will. Same thing that he's saying. What is he saying here? He's saying here, you are positionally sanctified. You are positionally made holy. You are spiritually seen as spotless. Hear me. Listen, listen, listen. Even though, listen, even though, scandal of the gospel, even though you don't always act like that, still seen as positionally sanctified, still seen as positionally holy, even though we don't act like that all the time. That's incredible. Who loves you like that? Who sees you like that in the world? Nobody does. Jesus is the only one, the righteous one. How's that possible? The righteous one becomes unrighteous. 
so that we can receive his righteousness. Come on, somebody. That's insane to me, right? The only one who is innocent becomes the one to blame so that we can be viewed as blameless. That's crazy to me. And like, that's what positional sanctification is, that we are made that way. He makes us that way, positionally. Listen, now because of that, because that is true, doctrinally, theologically true, because that's true, we get to respond. We get to respond to the gospel. Spiritually, we are made like Jesus. Physically, we get to progress and look more and more and more like our Savior. God's will then is our progressive sanctification, that we would believe the gospel, have it as a framework, have it as an identity, and then walk out gospel-driven obedience, that we would progress through life, and we might become and look more and more like Jesus. Well, how do I do that? Man, you do it through all the incredible resources that God's given you through the church. You get to do it through his word. You get to do it through prayer. You get to do it through, my man mentioned Porterbrook up here. You get to do it through missional community, through joining a team, through serving, through giving. There's all these incredible disciplines. Listen, not in a way like, like we're trying to stave off a river with ping pong balls, but, like, but with genuine worship. We get to step in and we get to pursue God, good God-driven gospel-driven obedience. Well, I need something more practical. I don't know how to make it more practical than that, but let me try. Do this. Read the book of Luke. Just open the book of Luke and just start reading it and then ask God to reveal, okay, what do I see Jesus doing? Reveal to me. What is Jesus doing in his life? Help my life to look like that. What is making Jesus happy? What makes Jesus sad? How does Jesus handle conflict? How does Jesus handle politics? How does Jesus handle different cultures? How does Jesus handle? And just start writing it down. And then just pray and ask the Holy Spirit. Say, God, could you please, in concert with your word, by the power of your Holy Spirit, help me look more and more and more like Jesus. I need his sanctifying work in me. I need to look like him. And, and the beauty is this. As you engage the gospel for Christ and engaging Jesus, here's what happens, man. It, it opens you up. Like as you begin to read God's word, it begins to read you. As you begin to pray for the heart of God, what happens is this. As you enter into prayer, praying for the heart of God, it begins to expose your heart in prayer. And you're like, man, I don't look anything like this, Jesus. I don't look anything like him. I'm not that holy. I'm not that innocent. I do get angry, and I get frustrated, and I over-discipline my kids, and I yell at my wife, and argue on the way to church, and I don't want to host my missional community. I don't want to buy food, and I'm tired of serving, and I'm tired of doing this, and it begins to reveal and to open you up. And then what happens, man, is that the Holy Spirit steps in, and instead of turning to guilt or shame or embarrassment, he says this, do you see how much you need him? Look how much you need him. And then the cross just becomes bigger and bigger and bigger for us, right? As we grow in our understanding of our depravity, God's holiness just becomes more and more and more magnificent. That is what the sanctifying work of the Holy Spirit does. God saves you. Listen, God saves you not through spiritual disciplines. God saves you, but then he gives you spiritual disciplines, not ping pong balls, spiritual disciplines to help you understand what that means to help you to look more and more like the Jesus you see in the scriptures. Let me tell you what, and as you engage in this way, oh my gosh, church, and the pleasure of the Father is revealed. When you read scriptures like out of the book of Hebrews, this is the joy of, the joy that was set before Jesus that drove him to the cross was the church. And you go, man, that's me. 
I'm a mess. <laughs> and it's like that pleasure that, that drove, the joy that drove Jesus to the cross to, to submit to the will of the Father, it becomes real. It becomes tangible, not just some guy, some dead old guy in, in the scriptures, but it becomes real. And all that is possible, not because of our really, really, really good work. It's possible because God, it brings him pleasure to work in us. It brings him pleasure to help us understand the imago Dei, what it means to walk in the image of God. It brings the father pleasure to see just his son multiplied time and time and time and time again as the church grows and becomes more and more beautiful and as the church enters into the culture and begins to renew cities, the father is pleased. He says, man, that's well done, good and faithful. And and the beauty of it is this, well, how, where do I keep getting this motivation from? Even on the days then, when we don't do that, <laughs> on the days when we don't walk out our sanctification, our salvation with fear and trembling, the Father, because of the work of Jesus, is no less pleased than us. It's that reality that even when we fail to be obedient, there is one who has stood in perfect obedience before us. He buys our way into the kingdom and it is the Father who looks at us, and whenever we're failing time and time and time again, here's what he does. He says, it's okay. I'm just going to put my son between us. I'm going to look at you through the lens of my son. What does the Father do? He puts a gospel framework on. Right? It's his identity that is the gospel. He puts that crown, that gospel framework on, and he says, that's okay. When they fail, my son is going to perform perfectly in their place. Dude, if that doesn't bring you pleasure, church, I don't know what will. That is the most incredible news. That is what our whole, everybody is longing for in our world. All this consumerism, all this inclusivity, exclusivity, everybody mad, everybody waving a banner of injustice. They're all looking for this. God has equipped us with a mission and he's entrusted us with the gospel. And we get to take it out into this world and we get to see him move. And, and what's beautiful is in those moments, man, when we don't look like Jesus, we don't feel like Jesus, we know true sanctification is happening. We begin to experience true pleasure. Within those moments, we're looking in the mirror and we think, I don't look like you, I don't think like you, I don't feel like you, and yet I'm gonna believe the gospel. I'm gonna just preach it to myself over and over and over and over again until it becomes so tangible I can taste it in the air. And then I'm gonna storm the gates of hell positionally sanctified. What does that mean? Christ secures your salvation, progressively sanctified. Christ ensures you will, in fact, look like him. Just trust and walk with him and walk out the gospel. And in doing so, I promise the gospel will provide you pleasure beyond anything you'll ever find in this world. Amen? Amen. Let me pray for us. We'll hit communion. Father in heaven, thank you so much for allowing me to come to Sacred City. I love, I love this church. Um, love the leaders in this church, love following along social media, hearing stories. God, whenever Justin and Ben and Sam and those other guys tell me stories, it's, they're not in theory. There's a, they're of the men and women in this room. So thank you, Lord, for their faithfulness. Lord, I pray today could be an encouragement in Christ for them to continue walking out their salvation and in doing so by understanding their sanctification. God, I thank you for 10 years of faithful gospel ministry, faithful gospel obedience, even in their disobedience, God. Obedience. God, I thank you for the pleasure even as we're getting to that, that it is to sit and watch from three, three and a half, four hours away, a couple hundred miles away, 
and just watch the Holy Spirit just make a splash in the Quad Cities. It's incredible what we get to see, what we get to experience because of you. I pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Hey, as we go to the table this morning, let me read to you from 1 Corinthians. It's what uh, we read at HCC before we feast together. So here we go. For Paul says this, For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, he took bread. And when he gave thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way also he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is a new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and you drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Let me just remind you, in the communion, hey, look here, communion ain't a ping pong ball. It's a boulder. It's a staple for us as Christians. And so when we show up here, we don't take communion as a religious event. We, we take communion as a redemptive event. And as we partake in communion, you see the bread representing Christ's body broken for you, and you see the cup, which represents Christ's blood, spilled for you. It's a reminder of your sanctification. It, it is not as a reminder that you are not the one who went to the cross. Jesus went to the cross to positionally sanctify you, to give you that identity so that you might walk out obedience. Whenever you see the cup representing his blood, it's that reminder of his innocent death in your place, that he's perfectly obedient when you cannot be perfectly obedient. And as you take communion, as, as you ingest that in, listen, it is a spiritual discipline that, that reminds you of all the work that Christ has done. And it most certainly reminds you that he ain't finished with you yet. Not finished with the church, not finished with the world, not until he comes back. And even then, we are going to worship because this resembles, it models, it foreshadows what's called a messianic banquet where he comes back and we get to dine with him forever and ever and ever. So for the men who are serving, if you all could come forward, That'd be great.